we're about to talk politics. This episode and the next one are about grappling with the 2018 Velvet Revolution. They're about the hope that came out of that moment and the aftermath that Armenia is living with today. When it happened, there were real fears that it would end in a violent crackdown. Back in 2008, people had died at protests. I remember later that year, seeing military consultants having brunch in Yerevan. They were there to advise the Armenian government on crowd control. I took it as a bad sign. It felt ominous. The oligarchs seemed to have an endless grip on power. So when the revolution happened, it seemed like the impossible had come true, that Armenia was suddenly this epicenter of democracy. But I also remember hearing a refrain. That was the easy part. Now it's time for the hard part. Not that it was easy to remove those oligarchs who had run the country for decades, but that getting people to agree that things have to change, in a general sense, is easy. The hard part is agreeing on what to change and how to do it. Identifying specific problems, finding reasonable solutions, making difficult compromises. Governing a country is messy, complicated work. And that's in the best of situations. Try to imagine a country you know, any country, remaking itself. That is tough. Armenia has been doing it while fighting a war and living through ongoing hostilities with its neighbor. So the years since 2018, that's been the hard part. We have these two stories with two people who have different perspectives on what has made it so hard. And we're focusing on one person in each of the next two episodes. Both were part of the protests that overturned the last government. Both had pivotal roles during the 2020 war. Both are deeply frustrated by politics in the country. And both are passionate about Armenia. The biggest difference between them is how they feel about the current government and Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. One thinks he has the country's best interest in mind. The other thinks he can't be trusted. Five years out, how is Armenia doing on the hard part? Welcome to Country of Dust. Stories of a Changing Armenia. This episode, We Shall Prevail. I'm Jeremy Dalmas. It's a little odd to be saying revolution in this episode, because Ruben Malayan doesn't even use that word. I don't think it qualifies to be called a revolution. I don't think it was a revolution. I think it was a revolt. I think it was a shift of power where a system remained and it was just replaced by other people. A revolution is about changing the status quo, it's about changing the system. If the system remains the same and it's just different people, then it's not a revolution, it's just a, a shift of power. That's it, that's it's what it is. If you're meeting Ruben in the studio, you have to walk up five flights of stairs in this old Soviet-era building. On the way up, 
you see his writing on the walls. And I, I, I wanted like to give some people who, who come here for the first time some visual guide. On one floor, it says, imagine. Then on the next, keep going. Because like, you know, it's five stories, no elevator. I do that twice, three times a day. And uh, yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> so it's kind yeah, of like, it's, it's encouragement. Like, okay, one more, one more and you're here. <laughs> Ruben is a visual artist and university lecturer. He's from Yerevan, but he spent a lot of time abroad, living and working in Israel, Canada, and the Netherlands. He's best known for his calligraphy, and these old walls make a perfect canvas. His studio is in the corner of this gigantic room that has huge windows. It's the kind of place that's boiling in the summer and freezing in the winter. They used to make state-of-the-art optical equipment here before the Soviet Union collapsed. But now, it just has a bunch of broken machines and decades of dust. It's been 30 years that this place has been decaying mm-hmm. like this. It's a good spot for contemplation and to make art. And Ruben's art feels really dynamic. You can see the brush strokes in the thick lines he uses to write his letters. And they're surrounded by these great splatters of ink. They look like they were just made and are still wet. You really feel the moment of creation, the confidence there. It's a great fit for a political poster. And during the revolution, he used to make them and pass them out in the streets. They were each one of a kind and drawn by hand. I would purposely do them on PVC boards that are light, easy to hold. And even if they're large, there's still, you know, one person can hold them. And um, just to they make a bunch and just go out on the street and say, like, who wants one? And people would look at them and, like, uh, smile and say, yeah, give me one. Ruben takes us over to a stack of his work and shows us some of the posters from that time. And, and this one is... Uh... Uh, It's very symbolic because it says that we paved the road by walking. John Apare, Kyle Lov, Gertank. I remember this one. Yeah. Another has the word no written in English, but with a circle of barbed wire for the O. He made over a hundred of these posters over four weeks. His goal was to hold up a mirror to the people on the streets to represent what he saw them saying. If you collected them all together, they would end up making a timeline of the revolution, a snapshot of the energy from each day. I didn't have a studio then. I was working at home. And I I remember specifically one moment when I realized that uh, so-called revolution has won. All the roads were blocked. Uh, There was no traffic at all. Um, And then I hear this incredible sound, like a vibration of a sound coming from the outside, and I realized something happened. It was the moment that Serge Sarkisian resigned, April 23rd, 2018. It was, it was incredible. I mean, the vibration of that sound actually reached me, and I was far away from the street, and I felt that vibration with my body. So it was incredible, yeah. Imagine a whole country cheering at once. It was a political earthquake that people could physically feel. How often does that even happen? (laughs) 
Before the revolution, when Sarkisian was in charge, Rubin felt like there were two sides. You were either for the people running the government or against them. That's what mattered. Not your commitment to the country, your commitment to the handful of oligarchs who ran Armenia. The key to get into the system is loyalty. You have to show them loyalty. If you're loyal, that's it. Your professional qualities come second. First is loyalty. But after that cheer went up and Sarkisian resigned, Rubin was energized about the future. He had hope. Things would change now. We thought that's it. We thought we are now at the break of a dawn of a new age, new era. Everything's going to be different now. I mean, we were in heaven. What did he think would happen? That he would believe in the government, like really trust them to make the Armenian people their priority and not just do whatever they could to stay in power. He also believed that they would be deep institutional changes and that everyday people like him would help decide what was going to happen. I mean, we were just dreaming. Like it was, uh, it was a dream. But like any dream, you wake up from it. There was a specific day he remembers, the day that changed how he felt about the new administration. They were trying to pass a series of constitutional changes, and they wanted branding to help sell it. So they put out an open call to designers. And everybody I know did work. But the group that ended up getting the job was this design agency that he had never heard of, who had copied their submission from an old design. It was plagiarized. And when everybody found out that this is not a genuine design, our prime minister went and started to justify this. If he knows the true story, apologize, condemn people that steal and plagiarize others' work, condemn them publicly, and pick a work that genuinely deserves to be won. To Rubin, Pashinyan was more interested in saving face than in doing what was right. This was the first seed of dissatisfaction for him, the turning point when Rubin began to doubt that the work of the revolution had actually changed anything. And we, I think, believed that we are on the right path because we thought that the system's going to change now, that we're going to break the wheel. He brings up a Game of Thrones reference to explain how he feels about what happened. If you were in Armenia when the show was airing, it was especially popular. Like in Game of Thrones, remember? The, the last episode. Break the will. No, the will remains. It's just different people. In the show, Daenerys Targaryen famously promises that she is different from all the other kings and queens and conquerors. She says, They're all just spokes on a wheel. This one's on top, then that one's on top, and on and on it spins, crushing those on the ground. I'm not going to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel. And what ends up happening in the show, spoiler alert, is that despite all her rhetoric, Daenerys is just more of the same. She promises so much, but ends up running over the people underneath her. This is how Rubin thinks about Pashinyan 
and this government. That the prime minister is another spoke on the same old wheel of corruption in the Armenian government, just the one that came after Serge Sarkisian. The first thing that comes to them is loyalty, not your professional qualities as a designer, as a politician, as an economist, or whoever you are, is that you should show us that you are loyal to us. That means you don't question our decisions. If we decide, all of us, that this is the right thing to do, that's it. Like a ship, you will follow. That it's just like before. And uh, to me, it was clear that we are on a, on a sliding slope. I just, I didn't know how quickly we're going to be rolling down the hill. That hill is autumn of 2020. He remembers the day that the war started in Artsakh. Yes, I was, uh, my wife woke me up and said uh, war broke out and I was just, I was asleep and I was just like, what? And um, when things like this happen, you are quickly shifting the mode into like, okay, so what do we do now? That morning, he started doing what he did during the revolution, designing. I wrote one word in which we, all of us, truly believed. I wrote Hachteluang, which means we shall prevail, we shall win. And uh, I turned it into this little uh, logo. Many people were using that phrase starting from the moment the war broke out. It became a rallying cry. But Rubin's design became an iconic version. It's just those 11 letters. It's rough on purpose. I did not refine it. I want it to be, to look like it's just roughly drawn. The idea behind Hachteluenk is simple, but it has a lot of weight. It's organic and direct, and that's why he thinks it ended up working so well. Every letter in that sequence reminds me of a person. Every letter is different in scale and in proportion. Like soldiers, you know, if you put soldiers in on the line and you just look at them, they don't look like, you know, all of them like carved Apollos. Like fat people, thin people, short, tall, all of, this is how the writing is. And Hachteluenk has got enough letters in it for me to create this visual flow. People started having it as their profile pictures on social media. And the logo got used for fundraising. It was put on shirts and brought in tens of thousands of dollars for the war effort. It was his way of helping, like the posters during the revolution. We shall prevail. It's powerful. But in the end, Armenia didn't prevail in this war. After the ceasefire, Armenia lost much of Artsakh. It was devastating for Ruben. Losing the city of Shushi was especially hard. His grandmother was born there. My roots are from Shushi. Every time I went to Shushi before the war, I thought I'm coming home. It was a very strange feeling. I mean, I never felt that way about any place, actually. And then it just gave it away as, as if it was, I don't know, a chair that was not needed anymore. That was a knife that was driven right into the heart of all of us. We could not just like, we could not believe it that uh, they did this. Before the war, he had started to lose hope in the new government. 
But after, that's when he completely lost his faith. He feels that the administration never thought of Artsakh as part of Armenia's identity. So a birthplace of my grandmother means nothing to them. It means a lot to me, but means nothing to them. It was a burden. They wanted to get rid of it. What was so hard for him to stomach was what the Pashinian administration didn't say during the war. They didn't let the public know how bad the fight was going, that the war was going to be lost and parts of Artsakh would be given over to Azerbaijan. They lied to us every single day. Lied, lied, lies. Endless lies were poured into our ears. Everything's going to be okay. Listen to the government. Do what we tell you. More lies, more lies, more disinformation. And we just kept swallowing it, that dope, straight up, until one day, boom, it's over. He had protested in the revolution so that citizens like him could be part of deciding what the country would do. So when this happened, he felt stabbed in the back. And not just him. Many Armenians felt this way. This goes beyond just a tactical loss. We needed to know how deep are we in trouble. Tell us. Straight, tell us so we know what to do. We know what, where we find resources. We need to know what, what are we dealing with. It was never said to us. And beyond that, he feels that Bashinian didn't even have the right to let go of the parts of Artsakh that were ceded to Azerbaijan. That the public didn't give him the power to make a decision with those consequences. If he knew that this is going to be the eventuality, he had to be honest about it with us and tell us, and then let us decide what to do. You can hear him hitting his chest. This isn't just about politics. This is deeper. You say this, people decide, let us decide, not you don't make decisions for us to surrender, Shushi. You don't decide that. You have no mandate to decide that for us. Ruben feels betrayed. His heart is broken. Two years after the war ended, he still has a Hartelewink sticker on his car. But it isn't easy to look at. And I don't remove it. I, I look at it. it. It hurts me every time. The meaning of it has changed. And even though he doesn't have faith in the government, he still has faith in Armenia. But I don't remove it from my car. Maybe ultimately because I believe we will prevail in the end. Hakteluink was a symbol of determination and togetherness for the war. But now is a different moment. If Ruben was going to make a new design for now, what would it be? Oh, wow. 
Oh, it's a difficult, very difficult question. Um, yeah, I wish I knew the words to help people get out of the state of apathy because I think this is where we are today. I would, you know, the Hartelink uh, meant it was a call to action, right? It was supposed to reaffirm our belief in victory. I would only write today Heirenik. Heirenik, meaning fatherland. It's the only word that I think uh, encompasses in it everything that matters to us. And we need to understand what does that word mean, truly. And he has been working with that word. On one side of the gigantic room where his studio is, there's an old, faded Armenian flag that's been on the wall for decades, just sitting there amongst all the Soviet equipment. Was this flag here? Yes. This flag is here for, I think, it's been here for 30 years. It looks like it's about to crumble. Yeah, it is. It's falling apart. The flag sags and is dirty. It looks like someone picked it up off the ground after a storm and tacked it on the wall. And underneath it, Ruben has written Hairanik. Hairanik, it means culture, language, uh, personal, interpersonal relationships, our care for ourselves, our loved ones, and a bigger circle. Hachteluink is a rallying cry. It's about what will happen. It pushes people towards big actions. Hairanik, it's grounded. It's about connecting to what is around you right now and looking back to what you share with others. We are all part of the same chain. Every link, we, each one of us is a link in that chain. We're all connected. And chain, you know, sinks all together. If you throw a chain in the water, no links will be left floating on the surface. It's going to sink all together. The work of trying to nurture that unity is the hard part that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, the part that comes after a political upheaval. The revolution was about uniting for a cause. The war required people to work together. Connections like that are difficult to come by in Armenia right now. With so much that has been shifting in the country, with all the uncertainty, it makes sense to want to focus on the links that connect the people of Armenia together. Because if the country wants to live up to the phrase, we shall prevail, it has to do so together. In the next episode, we'll continue talking about the Velvet Revolution and what came after it with Mane Gavorkian. But her perspective on the past few years is so different from Rubens. During the war, she was part of the government that he is so upset with. And just like him, she is still living through its aftermath.
Country of Dust is created and produced by Nairi Abrahamian, Jeremy Dalmas, and Gohar Khachatrian, with help from Gabrielle Caprielian. Sound engineering and music by Jeremy Dalmas. And thanks for the support from the Creative Armenia AGBU Fellowship, Impact Hub Yerevan, the Vahe and Lucy Foundation, and the Nexus Center for the Arts. And thank you so much for listening. If you like this show, the best way to support us is to help spread the word. Have a cup of surge with your tantik and let her know what's up. What's up?